Well, good morning. It is so good to hear your voices as we sing together. Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians. So find your New Testament, whether you're at home or here with us in the room. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're looking today at verses 13 through 18. On Tuesday, uh, Priscilla and I were working in the yard, and at one point uh, I was uh, removing a plant. We do that a lot. We just move plants around like chess pieces. But uh, I was removing this plant, and as I did, I didn't realize I disturbed a, a bunch of bees, okay? And, and in just a few seconds later, one got me like right in the back of the skull, and so I kind of yelled, and Priscilla looks at me, and just a few seconds later, she makes a similar sound because uh, she got one too. We're fine. It reminded me, though, a couple, weeks, a couple days later when Priscilla said she saw this meme on social media where it said, and you may have seen this one, if, if the year 2020 was a pinata, but it's a picture of a beehive. <laughs> Just imagine, we have been bit, it seems, bit, frustrated over and over, things canceled, frustrated about the masks or uh, this rule or this fear or what if this happens and, and opinions and emotions are all over the place. It's like this, we're always getting bit one way or another. And so as, as I was considering uh, this, this message, this passage today about Jesus coming back in this amazing truth called the rapture, I, I almost considered titling it I'm out of here. But it sounded a little bit negative because the real point of the passage is not what we escape, but rather what we will experience to meet the Lord in the air. And I'll invite you in this passage to just quickly look at the last verse of our study today, verse 14 or 18. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. This is where it's going. God means for us to be encouraged and encouraging one another. It's very likely you have neighbors or coworkers, family members that are not encouraged. It's a likely that they are not encouraging one another. There is nothing that will make us as believers in Christ more distinguished among our world than to be encouraged and encouraging others. And this core truth is one of the reasons why we can be encouraged and be encouraging one another in anticipation and appreciation of our future promised to us in God's word. Let's read verses 13, 14, and 15. You'll hear some things. You wonder, you know, what's that saying? We're going to walk through it, though. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul is giving the Christians of Thessalonica encouragement. They are to have confidence while the unbelieving world does not have hope, and the word really means confidence. He is answering a question that he probably received uh, through Timothy after he had spent some time in Thessalonica. When he says, we don't want you to be ignorant, there was some misinformation or gaps in their thinking that he meant to fill, to explain, to clarify after having taught there. And just to think back about the setting a little bit better, um, Paul had, with Silas on the second missionary journey, planted the church, sharing the gospel, planted the church in Thessalonica after having been in Philippi, not that far away, in Macedonia. The year is A.D. 50, to the best of our knowledge. 
Uh, in Philippi is where he and Silas were thrown into prison and uh, an angel delivered them. And things were not that much more pleasant in Thessalonica because they taught in the Jewish synagogue for some three weeks. And then things got hot there. And it seems that he continued to teach outside the synagogue for perhaps up to three months before, Acts 17 tells us, they actually had to sneak out of town at night for their own personal safety. So with only three months to plant a church and help the church grow, imagine how fast three months go, right? It's no wonder that there would still be some misunderstanding of what Paul had taught when Paul taught this truth. Jesus is coming back for his church, for believers. And here specifically is the question that they must have asked because this is the question that he answers. Evidently, as he taught about Jesus coming back, he taught, as we do today, that he can come back at any moment. The coming, the return, the rapture of Christ is imminent. And having taught that, because that's what Jesus taught, they were like, okay, is it now? Is it now? They were living rightly in expectation. But meanwhile, some of their Christian friends and family died. They had some funerals. And their concern does not seem to be so much, are they in heaven or not? That they seem to have clear. A believer is in heaven. But the question was, did our believing friends and family miss out on this incredible event of Jesus's return? It was, it was indeed, and it is indeed the most amazing thing, and he, they hated to think that they would have missed out on that. And so Paul answers basically saying, no, I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed. God wants you to know how these things work. They did not miss out. And so he then begins to teach in this passage these important twin truths about a single event. It's a resurrection and it's the rapture. Jesus is returning for Christians who are living at that time. And at the same time, Christ will raise from the dead those who have believed in him, and they will join together and be together forever in heaven in their new bodies. That's, that's the short version of what he is teaching. So, you should not grieve like the rest who have no hope. The rest are unbelievers who don't have this confidence because, in fact, they won't be part of this amazing event. Don't grieve like those who grieve hopelessly. Have you experienced being around people who grieve hopelessly as unbelievers? The fear of COVID is the fear of death. Now, everyone has always known that everyone dies, but until this year, it seems, people have been able to function rather well, delaying, pushing the fear of death down the road a bit. Because that's for people who are, are old or older than, than, you know, than I am. Or they could push it off because, you know, I haven't gotten a... You could push it off until you got a bad diagnosis at the doctor. You could, you could push it off until maybe it's your son that goes off to war or something like that. But by and large... Only a small percentage of the people that, that you know and work with and live around were really focused on the fear of death. But now suddenly, everything that we touched, every person we knew and loved is a potential cause of our death. And so it seriously has awakened this sense of our mortality. So the question is to us as believers... Do we have a confidence about death that would mark us as distinct from the rest of the world? I have a file, uh, a list of all the funerals that have been done through or at Open Door Bible Church. And as I think back to most of those events, almost all of them, many of them right here in this room, have been marked by confidence. Grief, indeed, but not grieving 
like the rest who have no hope, who grieve hopelessly. Because I've also been part of services where people had no hope. And where, where their, their, their thoughts of death and loss, they, they were inconsolable. There was no hope, no, no future. Sometimes, as people would, in that situation, talk about the one who has uh, died, it seemed they almost would exaggerate the goodness of the person who died, and that's something we all kind of do at that time. You emphasize the positive, right? But it seemed like they were, they were exaggerating the goodness trying to convince themselves that, that somehow they would be at the better place, the good place. They're in a better place, right? Because there's this assumption that if there's a heaven, the way you get there is by being good, which is not what the Bible teaches. It's the opposite of what the Bible teaches because the Bible teaches that we have all sinned and we all fall short. None of us deserves to be in heaven and the only way we can have confidence is what it says now here in verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so, or that's why we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So believers who die believing, trusting in Jesus will actually be a part of this event when Christ comes back. And the reason we find this phrase, fall asleep, or fall asleep in Christ, I think it's three times in this passage, is not just because it's a nice way to talk about death. It's not just a euphemism, but rather it's a metaphor that fits the physical death of believers. When you see someone sleeping, they can appear to be dead sometimes, right? So if you see your dad taking a nap this afternoon and you poke him, you will find out he's not dead at all. <laughs> he is suddenly very alive, and perhaps like those bees, uh, isn't too excited about you waking him up. So, so there is a sleep that best fits the death of a believer. Because actually they are alive. That's why he used the metaphor sleep. Believers who die are actually alive. How do we know that? Because it says we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's why we know that we are actually alive, even though we die, if we die with our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus attended a funeral of his friend, the funeral of his friend Lazarus, and he was talking with Lazarus's sister Martha about a death that isn't really death. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, Jesus said, will live even though they die. Earthly perspective, they die, but they will actually live. In fact, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So on one hand, he acknowledges, yes, physical death is a real thing. They will live even though they die, but yet there is a very real sense in which if you believe in Christ, you never really die. This is incredible. So where were the Thessalonian Christians who had passed away that they were asking about? Where are those believers that have been, uh, we've, we, we've, we've honored and celebrated their lives right in this room when they've, when they've passed away? I have a series of photos that I've taken from uh, the, uh, the cemetery behind the rural church, Abenfeld Church near Hillsborough, Kansas, where I grew up. This is the uh, marker for my sister, Sharon. Where is Sharon? Passed away at 13 years old. She fell asleep in Jesus. Where are my mom and dad who fell asleep in Jesus last year? Where's my grandpa William and Elizabeth, my grandma? He was 68. Or my great-grandfather, William and Minnie. He was 80. They fell asleep in Jesus. So where are they? They never really die. Or as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body and to be present with 
the Lord. That's why they didn't really die, but rather as they fell asleep, a temporary condition, they were immediately, in fact, there's no delay, there's no soul sleep, there's no purgatory. They were immediately in the presence of God, fully alive. So asleep in Jesus from our earthly perspective, but fully alive in heaven. So the Thessalonian Christians who wondered if their friends who passed away missed out on the rapture, nope. In fact, they are with Jesus. And verse 15 says this about those people who have died in Christ. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So believers in heaven now, asleep from our perspective, alive with Christ, believers in heaven now are awaiting the same event that you and I are, the rapture of the church. And in fact, so far from missing out on it, they are going to participate in it. They're going to accompany Jesus when he returns. It's like, it's like Christ and his church are inseparable, which is so fitting because the church is called the body of Christ, right? You can't be separated from your body when you're alive here, and Christ can never be separated from his body. So when he comes, he brings the whole family with him, and they will come with him and Far from missing out, they actually are the ones that make it more glorious. So the scene really is here from heaven's viewpoint. And what about us here on planet Earth? Verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, which reveals that Paul is getting this information, he's a prophet, a New Testament apostle, getting direct information to reveal new truth. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left till this event, till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Simply saying that, so in fact, those who will be raptured instead of resurrected actually have no advantage. We're all going to participate together in these twin truths. So believers who have died will be raised, and believers who are alive will be raptured. And that's what he now explains as he continues on in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 describes uh, the focus on the resurrection aspect. Verse 17 describes the rapture aspect. Twin truths. We're all part of the church. We're all going to be involved in the same thing. For, verse 16, for the Lord himself, that's a phrase referring to Jesus specifically, will come down from heaven. Jesus is in heaven. Remember he ascended to heaven? He will come down from heaven. Jesus is still human. Did you know that? He's, he's, when he became the God-man, he is always, from then on, the God-man. He is the risen Christ. He, is a, a, he has a physical, glorified, resurrected, immortal body like we will have. We'll be talking about that more next week as we do the other half of our study of the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to uh, study and read ahead. Amazing truth of this resurrected body. So Jesus has, is going to himself personally, physically come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Believers who have died in this age will be raised. Now, there's a reason, of course, we are living in this age. We are most interested in this doctrine. If you, if you, if you picture all of the prophetic truth, some that we've already introduced the last couple of st- studies or the ones that we'll look at in the future, it's natural that because this is about us, we are most interested. But we need to understand how this event fits into the overall plan of God prophetically. So a couple of weeks ago, in the previous study on this, we were looking at Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. I'd encourage you to, to review that or look over that if you uh, have, maybe you weren't a part of that. But I want to give you a, a, a brief summary. You see, God's plan was very specific 
and laid out. God has a plan. We are living in that plan somewhere. And this passage kind of teaches us where. Daniel was focused on God's plan for the nation Israel. It's an Old Testament when, when Israel passage when the Israel was the focus. So we looked at this, this kind of a chart, and if this is new to you, I'll just kind of look at a couple of major points. God gave you a prophecy about 70 weeks, or really 77s, we saw that those were years, and they started a specific time, 444 BC, and they were completed when Christ came, AD 33. 69 sevens are complete, historically, they're done. There's a 70th seven, and we saw that that refers to the future, to us, future tribulation period, which is the focus of most of the book of Revelation. So we realize there is a significant gap between Christ and the coming tribulation. We live in that gap somewhere, so someplace is where we are. Because there's amazing truth of the New Testament, and so the whole New Testament is written to, to then bring this new information, how Jew and Gentile together form the church, the body of Christ. When does that end? We don't know the date. God said we won't know the date. We shouldn't guess at the date, but we do know how it will end. This event ends it. It's the rapture, the resurrection, when those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, who have died during this age, and those who are alive at the end of the age are going to be together resurrected or raptured and gathered up. The church goes to be with Christ. And so that is the incredible prophecy the big picture, and then how we specifically fit into it. The Lord himself will come down from heaven, and we are going to be gone. If, you, if, you, if you've observed how much chaos there is on earth from a pandemic, imagine the chaos, the concern of the world when all Believers, some significant portion of the world population vanishes. Raised from the dead, or, verse 17, caught up, raptured. I don't know which will be more shocking to people. The resurrection, if that is visible and physical, that, that it is somehow seen and known, or if it'll be the rapture, the absence. And so uh, movies have been made. Uh, you've maybe seen, some of you have seen the movie Left Behind, or, or there's even some uh, secular versions of it. It's fascinating to think about what the reaction will be on earth. But you know what? The Bible actually doesn't talk about the reaction on earth. The focus is on what we experience as we are, are caught up together to meet the Lord. That's going to be the main thing. And then, of course, there is a focus not on the reaction to the rapture, but rather the tribulation and what will happen on earth during that season. But Christ returns, it says, with a loud command, voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God. It's going to be noisy. The question is, who hears it? And so some have thought, well, maybe unbelievers that are left here don't even hear it. I tend to think that as much emphasis as there is on noise, they're going to know it. I, I think of this, the, uh, the account in Acts chapter 9 when the risen Christ appeared to Saul as he was persecuting the church, going on the way to Damascus. There's just bright light. And it says in verse 7 that, that the people around him, his entourage, saw the light and heard a sound, but didn't see Jesus. So it seems like they were kind of limited. They didn't hear, there was quite a conversation actually between Paul and Jesus. I don't think they were part of that, but they heard the sound. So I'm wondering if there indeed will be that the unbelievers that are not part of the rapture will hear a sound. What does Jesus say in this loud shout or command? Doesn't say, but can I, can I speculate a little bit? Sanctified speculation. I think now of Lazarus, another resurrection that Jesus called forth. And so at the funeral of Lazarus, he had been dead and buried several days, and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and boom, he's alive. Does Jesus say the same thing again? Church, 
come forth. And, and God, who created all things, all people, the universe from nothing, is fully able to call together molecules of all who have died. In, in my, my, my hometown cemetery, uh, wherever you or I and our remains might be, if we have died by then, and is able to call together and raise from the dead at the command of Christ. And the voice of the archangel, known as Michael from the book of Jude, uh, maybe he repeats or accents uh, the, the words of Christ, the trumpet call of God, some other loud blast or noise, maybe to make sure everybody in the world pays attention to this amazing thing that God is doing. The first thing he is doing is a resurrection. So what we call the rapture is a resurrection first, and it's all part of the same event. 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In Christ, those who are in Christ. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits. Is that one completed? Check. Christ rose from the dead, Easter Sunday morning. Christ the firstfruits. Then, when he comes, this event, those who belong to him. That's us. That's you. If you have believed in Christ. This is that resurrection. The dead in Christ will be raised. The dead in Christ seem to be a very specific reference to believers of this age, really since the time of Christ, or probably best defined as starting with Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon believers, and we in a special privileged sense now have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We are the church. We are the ones who are in Christ, a specific term. Believers of the Old Testament will also be resurrected. Daniel 11.2 suggests that'll be at the end of the tribulation because the tribulation, that 70th week of Daniel, is again focused on Israel. At the end of that, those who are asleep in the dust, Daniel says, will be raised. And then Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6 say that those believers, people do come to faith in Christ during that seven-year tribulation. They will also be, the ones who are martyred will be also raised at the end. So there's two key resurrections of believers, one before, one after this seven-year period of time. Verse 17. This is the part that we all kind of hope is us, right? After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them, the ones just resurrected, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So he's coming down, and we're going up, and we meet in the air. Very specific. I often like to draw on a chart, kind of like a, an arrow, a, a hook that goes like this. That's Jesus. He comes and gets us. We rise to meet him. He comes to get us and catch us. Actually, uh, it's very fitting for what this word means, to, to be caught up. So we will be joining Jesus without dying. Anybody here in favor of not dying? <laughs> Wouldn't it be great? Shouldn't we be living in expectation that maybe it'll be us who will be alive at this time? It's not that God can't or hasn't done it already. Two examples in the Old Testament of people who did not die. Did you know that? Enoch. Genesis chapter 5, he says, he was not because the Lord took him. He's the great-great-grandfather of Noah. Genesis 5. Another one was Elijah, where 2 Kings 2, it says that uh, Lord, the Lord caught him up in a whirlwind and took him to heaven. So uh, it's kind of like, just to show us, you know, I can do this. <laughs> I, can, I can take people to heaven, and next week we'll look at how, what that means for our body, because you don't want to go in this body, all right? This body, you aren't stuck with this body if you, if you happen to be a part of the rapture. You'll still get a new body. Amen. Uh, the dead in Christ will rise. After that, we who are alive will be caught up together with him. This word caught up is really the word 
uh, is where we get the word rapture. Some have said, well, you know, the word rapture is not in the Bible. No, it's not in the English Bible. But, uh, of course, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The Greek word is not rapture, but the Greek translation, the, the, rather, the, the Greek was translated into Latin in those early centuries, and the Latin word for caught up is rapturo. And it just so happens that that's the word that kind of caught on. And so when you see this word caught up, you really are looking at the rapture word. And, and the word, the Greek word, the original word that Paul used, really does mean to, to, to take, snatch, grab, pluck. Jesus is going to grab us. Isn't that amazing? It's, it, it's, what, it's what you would do if you have young children or grandchildren. You saw them step into danger. You would grab them out of the street to rescue them. In some amazing act, a huge whoosh, Jesus is going to catch us up in the rapture, the hook, the snatch, the, the grab. First Thessalonians earlier in this same book, teaches about the rescue. And wait for his son from heaven, that's the rapture, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. I'm going to show you three passages that each show us how the rapture precedes this tribulation period. Now some have said, well, that's maybe just hell. It's a bit more than hell in these prophetic context because he's going to be describing to the Thessalonians the time of tribulation. Or Revelation 3, Jesus said, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. And then chapter 4, Revelation on through chapter 18 describes the great tribulation. Jesus said, I'm going to keep you from that. Or a few verses, or really the next chapter after our study here, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We get the clear impression that he is seeking to rescue us from the time of the great tribulation. Now, is that a cop-out? I mean, do we, do we believe that the rapture is before the tribulation because, well, it's just more pleasant and more, more easy? It's not a cop-out, but it is his promise. And it certainly is not the case that somehow Christians are uh, promised to avoid hard times. Jesus said, John 16, 33, says, In this world you will have, uh, some translations say tribulation, meaning you'll have problems, you'll have trials, you'll have very hard things. There's many things that God does not deliver us from any more than the rest of the world. Uh, the world is suffering, whether it's covid or cancer, accidents, abuse, starvation, war, an explosion in Beirut, Lebanon. People are suffering in many ways, and Christians are not exempt. Christians are not exempt from persecution. When it talks about being delivered from God's wrath, that's different than persecution. That's not God's wrath. Christians are being persecuted today, and for the last 2,000 years, they've been severely persecuted. There are believers all over our world, unlike the freedoms we enjoy in America, who are imprisoned and martyred all the time. We're not promised freedom from persecution, but we are promised that we will be delivered from this specific wrath that is coming upon the whole world. And if you read... Revelation chapters 4 through 18, and you see the judgment that God in his wrath, as a cup is filled up, pours out upon the world, you can be very grateful that you will not be a part of that. Just as it's similar to, the, to just thinking through the Old Testament, God delivered Noah when he poured out his wrath on the world for their sin. God delivered Lot when he poured out his wrath upon Sodom and Gomorrah. God will deliver us from his wrath as well. This teaching, and some of you are acquainted with some of this, is what is called the pre-tribulation, pre-before-tribulation view of the rapture. Now, 
In full disclosure, there are sincere Bible students and readers who believe that Christians will go through some or all of the tribulation. And so they have to look at passages in some, I believe, rather unusual ways to make that uh, work in their understanding. So I'd like to just share a little bit, kind of the, I guess, the simplest explanation. It's also the most accepted by those who uh, take the Bible at face value. The simplest explanation of why we believe the, that the next thing on the prophetic calendar, and it's about us, is indeed the rapture of the church. So let's just, I'm going to go through three passages, first of all, that just simply outline. If you, if you ever want to know, how do I know that, that, that I believe in the rapture, but I believe the Bible? Just think through these three passages. Number one, Jesus told the disciples he would come back for them. So in John chapter 14, it's the beginning of his discussion with the disciples the night before he goes to the cross. Part of what he's telling, him, telling them during that evening, and we studied that just a couple years ago, is he says over and over, I'm going to leave. <laughs> Guys, I'm going to leave. I'm going to send you the Spirit. I'm going to leave. But here's a very important part of that discussion. He says, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to come back. In my Father's house are many rooms. That's heaven. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So he's been teaching, I'm going to get heaven ready for you, and if I go, and he will, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus said, I'm going to leave, I'm going to come back. They are, they are very, they don't like to hear that Jesus is leaving, but they don't understand the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, that's all going to happen in the coming days so he said, I just want you to be ready and know that I'm going to leave, but I am going to come back. So fast forward now through the cross, the resurrection, to the day of the ascension, Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends to heaven, and the angels tell the disciples that Jesus would come back for them. So Jesus gives the great commission, you're my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, etc. I'm going to send the Spirit. He teaches all those things. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, I mean, literally, physically. And a cloud hid him from the sight. So he goes up. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white, angels, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand looking here into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven, physically, literally up, Physically, literally, he's coming down. So everything is on schedule. Jesus said, I'm going to leave and come back. And when he leaves, the angel said, yes, and he's going to come back. So fast forward another 17 to 20 years to our passage in Thessalonians, and we find that Paul is simply rehearsing, reviewing the promise of Christ that had already been reviewed by the angels. And now Paul tells them that Jesus would come back for them. And so here's our passage after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. It seems indeed that the very next thing that we are waiting for is the rapture. In this verse, this passage we're studying is one of the strongest evidences that it's the very next thing. Do you notice the pronoun that Paul uses when he describes the event we. We who are still alive. What was Paul expecting? He was expecting it to happen during his life, which teaches us that it is imminent. Imminent. Uh, I want us to have the assurance of what this is really about, because the end of the passage tells us we should be encouraged by this truth. And chapter 5 will tell us that we should be alert and awake and be thinking about the return of Christ. So I want us to be convinced and understanding that Christ could come back at any time. Christ could come back before, before the end of this message, before you get your mask off, before I finish this sentence. This loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, is a real event that is promised to us. And Paul expected to be a part of it, we who are still alive. I want to share three of uh, 
kind of evidences scripturally about that. I've, uh, on your outline, I've included a link uh, to an article uh, about that. I've got copies that have all five of those uh, points or evidences uh, at the back table if you're here with us, or you can go to the link. But I just want to share and review the first three. The first one is what we just have seen in 1 Thessalonians, and that is that the imminence of the rapture means it's pre-tribulational. We, if it can happen at any time, that means there is nothing that has to happen first to our knowledge. God knows it has to happen first, right? He knows exactly how long it's going to be, how many people are coming to know faith, faith in Christ, and what are the events, and, and the pandemic. He knows all those things, but it's all in his plan, but from what he's shown us, it can happen at any moment. If, if the return of Christ and the rapture were somehow combined with his coming judgment at the end of the tribulation, it's like, well, that's a seven-year period of time. You know, we're year two of seven. You know, we got this much. No, we don't know those things. We are to be anticipate and await Christ's return at any time. Here's another important one, and that is that no tribulation passage mentions the church. When we were uh, introducing this series the first week, we looked at Revelation, and uh, the first three chapters use the word church 19 times because it's written to these various churches, actual churches, part of the same age that we're a part of. And suddenly, with the beginning of the tribulation in chapter 4, chapters 4 through 18, the next 14 chapters mention the church zero times. There's no mention of asleep in Jesus or in Christ or those references, the church is gone. And so it seems that indeed the, the tribulation is something that we will, as believers in Christ in this age, not be a part of. The third reason being what we just reviewed actually, that uh, prophetic passages say that Christians are rescued from God's wrath, from the wrath to come, the day of trial, uh, not appointed us to wrath. And the other two evidences you can look at for yourself uh, sometime. These final statements are tremendously good news. And, and the point is that God would want to encourage your heart to know that you will forever be with him, caught up together with them, the living believers, with those who are resurrected at that time, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That is our future. We will be with the Lord forever. If we die, we'll be with the Lord forever. If we're here when this happens, we'll be with the Lord forever. He's going to come from heaven and take us, and we're, we're out of here. I can't imagine how glorious that'll be to actually see our Savior. If you're a believer in Christ, you have trusted him with the most important issue of your life. You have trusted him with the biggest thing. You have trusted him based on his word about where you will be forever. This is written to us on earth to encourage us, verse 18, that we would trust him with everything happening on earth as well. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Some Bible translations use the word comfort, and this Greek word can be uh, translated comfort in the, in the, in the uh, context of grief, and that would really fit in the sense if they're still grieving their loved ones, but I think the focus is on moving forward encourage one another. You see, they were living in difficult times. I mentioned that they had to leave town. Here's what happened. Read Acts 17. Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica. They're preaching the gospel uh, as they are teaching in the synagogue in those first three Sabbaths. And then there are some of the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica who are very angry and jealous that now people are listening to Paul instead of listening to them. That's the bottom line. And so they go and find some people to lie about Paul and Silas. And they start a riot 
And they go after a man named Jason, who evidently was hosting Paul. They're going to go try to find Paul, but Paul and Silas weren't there at the moment. And so they physically drag Jason out before the officials with these false witnesses. And and the, and the officials require Jason to post a bond, put out some money to guarantee there'll be no more, you know, no more riots, no more upsetting, as if it was Jason's fault. You see, the enemies of the cross don't fight fair. And when, when we, whenever we would experience persecution in some sense, don't expect it to be based on truth. Don't expect it to be fair. It won't be. The enemies of the gospel don't fight fair. And yet, in that same context, these are the people who are receiving this letter Paul is saying, but be encouraged. And in fact, don't just be encouraged. What does it say? Encourage each other with these words. Does that mark you? As a person of encouragement and encouraging others in these days. That's what we're being called to do. I was talking to a Christian woman this week. Um, about COVID and the controversies and how you know, some Christians, you know, uh, even within, we were talking about, even in a marriage, you know, he or she thinks more this way and he or she thinks more that way. Is this thing really real? And, and she said, you know, the, the main issue really is trusting God. Now, you've been in about 1,000 or 2,000 of those conversations too, right, in the last couple, couple of months? And I was thinking, you know, uh, on the one hand, you have this temptation to fear the virus. Could it be us? On the other hand, you have this temptation to fear the government and, and control you know what's really in common? Fear. What's really in common is, do we trust God? If we are waiting for the virus to go away to somehow be sufficiently safe, you will not be encouraged, nor will you probably be encouraging others. If you are waiting for the right people to be elected or the right truth to come out, or the Christian values to be upheld, you probably will not be encouraged and you probably won't be encouraging others. And yet, what we are commanded, this is a command, encourage one another. And so if you feel yourself, sense yourself being drawn into the same world of conflict that the unbelieving world is obsessed with right now, you won't be encouraged. You can't encourage others. But if you focus on the realities that God is in control and we know where we will be forever and that we are focused on glorifying Christ and we are focused on sharing the good news of Christ, you will be encouraged. Because those things are happening. Those spiritual realities are happening right now. Pastor Seth shared last week that we are not physical. Christians are not physical beings having a spiritual experience. We are a spiritual being having a physical experience. And this is the conclusion of, of, of the reality of who we really are as believers. So the real pressing question is this. Are you a believer, first of all? Are you a believer in Christ who will be a part of this event? The second question is, if you're a believer, are you encouraged in encouraging others? If we go back to the passage we saw before, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. We as a church need to have a heart and a passion for the people around us who have no hope. And if you happen to be here, you happen to be watching, listening today, and you aren't sure, you aren't absolutely sure of what would happen if you were to die today, or if the rapture were to take place today, I want to urge and encourage you 
to understand what Christ is saying here. Verse 14 said, Jesus said, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's why we have confidence about eternity. Jesus Christ died to pay for your sin and the sins of the whole world. Because the reality is that all have sinned, Romans 5 tells us, all have sinned and come short of God's glory. So we all actually deserve God's judgment. And the penalty or the wages, the punishment of sin is an eternal death in hell. The wages of sin is eternal death, Romans 6.23. But God solved that problem when he sent Jesus Christ because God, Jesus is God in the flesh and he came to earth and in himself he took upon his perfect self as the God man he took upon himself all the sins of all the world and he paid for your sin he paid for my sin so that if you live and believe in Christ you are one that will really never die you will simply fall asleep in Jesus only to be resurrected or raptured at this amazing event. So the word believe really means to trust. And the question then is, what are you trusting in for eternal life? Are you trusting in you or are you trusting in Christ? Are you trusting in good works? Are you trusting in church membership? Are you trusting in, in being baptized? Are you... Are you trusting in you or are you trusting in Christ? I would just urge you, if you've, if you've never maybe heard the teaching of this truth or you've never come to the confidence of your own salvation, that right where you are right now, you would simply express to God the truth that you are putting your faith in him alone. You might pray something like this, Dear Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. I realize that I could never earn salvation. And I'm putting my trust in you alone, that you died for my sins and rose again. And then you will have the confidence of eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just commit this piece of your word that we have studied today to burn into our hearts to know that this is the, the reality of your promise. We ask you, O oh God, to just um, speak to each one who may have not yet put their faith in you as Savior that they would uh, trust in you. They would understand that their good works could never save them, but that you, by your work on the cross, have paid the full penalty of their sin. I pray that they would put their trust in you alone. And we will praise you as we await your return. In Jesus' name, amen.